Summer is here, and we're as busy as ever at the DSR Network. Our podcast schedule has expanded to include the DSR Daily Brief, DSR Foreign Policy, DSR Politics, the DSR Spy Show, Words Matter, Foreign Office with Michael Weiss, Next in Foreign Policy, and The Secret Life of Cookies. To celebrate our expansion, we're bringing you this special offer. Through the month of June, membership is 50% off. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, bonus content across all of our podcasts, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. To take advantage of this offer, visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSRexpands, all one word. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSRexpands. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to our podcast. I'm David Rothkopf, your host, coming to you from Washington, D.C. And today, as you might have expected, we're going to do a special deep dive into the events in Russia uh, and uh, environs the uh, past few days. Uh, We are extremely fortunate to have a, a friend of ours, Angela Stent, who's the Director Emerita of the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East Asian Studies, uh, and Professor Emerita of Government and Foreign Service at Georgetown University. Um, and uh, her latest book is Putin's World, Russia Against the West and With the Rest, 2019. Uh, so she's an expert not just in Russia, but also in Putin. How are you today, Angela? I'm fine, thank you. Well, Nice to see you. Um, and we are also joined um, by Jack Margolin, who's an independent journalist and a research with a particular focus on private Russian military companies, which, of course, is relevant here because it includes Evgeny Prigozhin and the Wagner Group. Hi, Jack. How are you? Doing great. Been very busy. I can well imagine that you have. Uh, I know you've been doing some talking to our colleague, Michael Weiss. Uh, who recommends you extremely highly. Uh, and I think the place that I'd like to begin, since events have uh, continued to evolve um, on an hourly basis and uh, confusion has not seemed to abate uh, over that period, as, as we've seen uh, rumors about uh, various players in this uh, 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 come and go, uh, I think the place to start is to um, just get your reaction to where we are now in this and what's significant about that. And I'll start with you, Angela. <laughs> Thank you. Well, first of all, uh, I think we have to be humble and realize there's an awful lot that we don't know. Uh, you know, we know what we're told publicly. There are all kinds of rumors flying around now. Um, and in fact, if you go on the Russian state media, they're basically saying, yeah, not, nothing really happened. There wasn't a mutiny. Um, so, you know, we, we've seen Putin, Putin having disappeared on Saturday when the mutiny was taking place, has now come out in public, 
Uh, he traveled to Dagestan, where the crowds thronged around him. I guess he wanted to show that just like Yevgeny Prigozhin in Rostov, he could have people come out and welcome him. And he's sending the message, obviously, that he's in charge. There are rumors today that General Sudovikin, uh, who was the commander of all the forces in Ukraine, has been arrested. Um, U.S. intelligence has put out um, statements saying that Sudovikin knew in advance of this mutiny. Um, and there are uh, the suggestions that other generals in, in the army, other people knew about this mutiny. Again, this is all speculation. Uh, Prigozhin was supposed to go to Belarus. Alexander Lukashenko announced that he was and that Wagner would be coming there. But there are also rumors that actually Prigozhin has gone back to Russia, uh, that he's not in Belarus. Uh, Wagner certainly hasn't been disbanded, and I know um, David will be talking about that. Um, and we don't really know if Wagner troops have gone to Belarus, which is uh, one thing they were supposed to do. <clears throat> so I think we can just say that the message that Putin and those around him are trying to put out is that everything's normal, uh, that the public came to Putin's defense or the defense of the Constitution. Uh, but in reality, uh, as I say, we don't know where Prigozhin is. We don't know where the heads are going to roll, where the people have been arrested. Um, and we don't really know uh, what's happened to the Wagner fighters. Okay. Well, uh, you've been following this closely, Jack, and uh, uh, maybe you have something to add that uh, uh, amplifies what Angela says or is different. What do you, what, where do you think we are? I definitely agree that we're in a space where there are a lot of unknowns. I agree with uh, everything Angela has to say around the little that we do know. Um, I think that the some of the biggest revelations here were really around uh, what the consequences for this would be. Obviously, we don't have the full picture yet. I am sure that this story is not over, given that we're dealing with uh, someone as sort of mercurial and uh, dramatic as Prigozhin. But uh, I think I can speak for the sort of larger Russia analyst community in saying that everyone was shocked uh, with the the progress that that Prigozhin and Wagner were able to make um, coming within hundreds of kilometers of Moscow, um, downing multiple uh, Russian military aircraft, resulting in the death of Russian servicemen, all to have it kind of seemingly swept under the rug, at least at first. Um, now, the messaging coming out of the Kremlin, as Angela says, there's this focus on minimizing the significance of what's happened but I think that's really difficult to do even for the domestic audience, even in that controlled of an info space. And so this will demand some kind of reaction, a stronger reaction from the Russian state. Otherwise, what we're looking at is a new set of circumstances that exposes how hollow the Putin regime may truly be. Maybe that Prigozhin's belief and his ability to sway Putin through coercion um, was grounded in more information than we know. Um, but certainly other elites are watching this. And if there's not a strong state response, then those elites are going to either start to consider alternatives if Putin's ability to safeguard their prosperity and security is brought into question, or if they see in this an opportunity, if they see that through coercion, it's possible to extract concessions from the Kremlin. So Angela, you've been following Putin, writing about Putin uh, for some time. Um, he's been in this job for nearly a quarter century, 23 years, uh, um, uh, or been in a job that was adjacent to it. Uh, and, and, and 
I think among the few things that most people agree on is that Putin is weaker today than he was a week ago. Now, maybe a little weaker, maybe considerably weaker. What's your take on that? So I, my thought certainly on Saturday and Sunday was he certainly does look weaker. I mean, again, the fact that you had someone challenging, not him directly, but certainly challenging the MOD, uh, and they could get within 125 miles of Moscow um, without meeting any serious resistance from anyone else um, would, would make him look weak. Um, on the other hand, I think from what we know of the elites that were already talked about, um, when they thought that it was a choice between Putin and Prigozhin, they'd still rather have Putin there because, you know, there's the, he's protect or they can protect their assets with him there. And if he leaves, then, you know, they don't know what's going to happen to those assets. Um, he seems to be, he's projecting again, you know, an image of, uh, of, of greater strength. So he's somewhat weaker, but I'm not sure that, um, he's significantly weaker than he was before. Again, it's going to depend on what happens to Prigozhin uh, and what happens to some of the other people, the top officials, do they all stay in place? Um, but, um, I mean, the, the other thing that makes one, you know, pause is none of his colleagues, none of the other officials came out on Saturday to publicly support him. I think the only person who appeared to have called him, and that was made public at least, was Erdogan of Turkey, who himself had been through uh, an attempted coup. But there were, and, and people didn't come out in the streets to support him either. Uh, for instance, when there was a, when there was this attempted coup in Turkey, people came out on the streets to to back Erdogan up. You saw nothing of that. So there was kind of radio silence in Moscow over the weekend, and people were frantically trying to get air tickets um, out of Russia, or they were they were leaving and going to their their country homes, their duchess. So it shows that there's, you know, there's an absence of, of public support for him there. Does that matter? I mean, it's a very, you know, in a repressive system like that, as long as the troops are loyal to him, then it doesn't. Uh, but it's even his his National Guard, he has his own Praetorian Guard of 300,000 uh, men, and uh, we didn't see them visibly on the weekend either. So it, that, that, it still leaves questions about that. Yeah, and I think, you know, some of these questions swirl about because b- before Prigozhin led his march up the M4 towards Moscow, he, uh, you know, he took some time to take shots at the, the rationale that Putin had offered for going into Ukraine, um, and uh, the fact that he's still potentially at large, and there's all these rumors about Surovikin, and um, uh, and and Putin is clearly lying about some of this. You know, I mean, you know, when he got his security services together and said, "You stood, but you know, you stopped Russia from going to civil war," they didn't do anything. You know, so, and, you know, people know that. So there, you know, these other factors. But there's one place, it seems to me, Jack, where it's indisputable that Putin comes off weaker. And that's in Ukraine, because the Wagner forces were there. Most of them are not there at the moment. We don't think they're going to be doing any fighting there. Um, If he starts arresting people like Surovikin or other senior people in the military, that's going to cause some, you know, tumult at the higher ranks. 
And, you know, the guys who are on the ground fighting Ukraine, who know that, you know, within a matter of weeks, they're about to get a big onslaught from Ukraine, have got to be saying, is this worth dying for? I mean, it seems to me on many levels, they're weaker there. Do do you agree with that analysis or no? Certainly. I think that one of the sort of interesting points that Prigozhin highlighted um, in his numerous audio messages that he published um, in the early stages of their advance towards Rostov was that uh, the actions they were taking were not going to have any harmful effects on Russia's efforts in Ukraine, which is stretches belief, although it was apparent that combat operations continue to pace. And then we've seen the horrible missile strikes today, et cetera. Um, in terms of the loss of Wagner as a fighting force in Ukraine, this is something that I think people have puzzled over a lot as the battle uh, at Bakhmut started to reach its conclusion. Um, what was their next mission going to be? What would the real cost to Russia be if Wagner was pulled out? Um, and what I think we can say is this, Wagner is in many ways more effective than large parts of the Russian military. The Russian military is not a monolithic entity. It has pockets of excellence. Um, but what Wagner does really, really well are these types of combined arms assaults and behaving flexibly, countering a flexible adversary like Ukraine. They have uh, tremendous combat experience and they have this brain trust of commanders that really forms the backbone of their ability to fight in a way that is more inventive and more forward thinking than most units in the Russian military. Without that, um, it's certainly a loss for Russia. Um, I would say at least as important, it's also a loss in their recruitment potential. One of the biggest boons that Wagner has presented for the Russian state over the last year has been a, a recruitment valve by which to bring more young men into the war that otherwise would have likely uh, sought to avoid service. And they're able to do that by offering better pay, um, claiming that um, you're going to be treated better than you would be in the Russian military, though that's extremely doubtful given we, we know what the cost for um, surrender is. It's a summary execution. Um, but through all of these means, Wagner was immensely useful. It could staff more bodies for the war. And unusually, it could also serve as a pressure valve, wherein the MOD had quotas for recruitment. Um, it needed to deploy more men, but they found that many of their units didn't have the capacity to do that. And we saw in the last several months cases in which um, soldiers from the Ministry of Defense were actually pushed off onto PMCs like Wagner. With that gone, it's a lot more stress on the MOD proper, both in terms of actual combat and in terms of what it's like to actually field these men. Um, and having the human capital to do that properly. Can I just add something, David? Just before I came on, I watched a video of a journalist who works for Medusa, which is uh, operates out of the Baltic states now. But he called the recruitment number for Wagner, and he got a guy on the phone, and the guy said, you know, send me your date of birth and your particulars, and yes, we're recruiting. And he said, um, you know, we, we're still... Um, in our hub in Russia, and that's where we're, we're recruiting soldiers. And you know, don't believe a lot of the things that you heard for the past few days. Now, this is just one thing, but there, you know, people are also saying that uh, the number for the Wagner that the numbers are going up now of people who are trying to join. Um, so uh, it, it begs the question then of, you know, are they going back into Ukraine or not? 
But also, I mean, it begs this question about whether Prigozhin, whether Wagner, you know, when Prigozhin made his remarks um, uh, before, uh, or no, just after uh, this abortive insurrection, he, he, he said, look, what triggered this was that they were going to disband us on July 1st. And uh, we, uh, uh, you know, didn't think that was right. And they were being mismanaged. So where we were going after the people in the Ministry of Defense who were mismanaging this. Um, and so he essentially said, look, this was a contract dispute. This was not a, a coup attempt. Um, and, and, you know, he reiterated a lot of the attacks he's made on the on Shoigu, the Minister of Defense, and on the the, uh, uh, the, the military leadership. Um, but right now, um, uh, we don't know where he is. They were supposed to be disbanded. I thought Putin's speech the other night was kind of poignant in that he was kind of begging the Wagner group to you know, lay down their arms and, you know, get, you know, accept the, the, the terms of, uh, of amnesty. Um, uh, and as you just referred, Angela, the, you know, the, 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 it, it sure seems like for the moment Wagner is still in business. So I had a two-part question, one for Angela and one for Jack, but the part for Angela is, is that a problem for Putin? Does he have to eliminate Wagner, eliminate Prigozhin, um, uh, or the opposite? Does he? Do, do, is it too hot to handle, and he should, you know, is does he have to sort of manage this issue? Well, so you know, when you think about Wagner, you should also realize that Wagner has been a very important arm of the Russian state, projecting its power in the global south, particularly in Africa, uh, Central African Republic, Mali, uh, Sudan, Libya, Syria. Um, so the idea that they would disband Wagner right now, and of course, it's been very lucrative, not only for Prigozhin and his comrades themselves, but also for the Kremlin, because in, in places like the Central African Republic, they own lots of lucrative assets, gold, you know, mines, diamond mines, precious metals, and things like that. So there's that whole other side of Wagner, which I would find, I would be very surprised unless just the MOD takes it over, but that's not how it's operated. And, you know, they support all these authoritarian rulers there. So I would have thought that it's still, I mean, if if nothing happens, to, if we see nothing happening to Prigozhin soon, uh, and he and Putin go back a very long way, um, you know, to, to the St. Petersburg days, um, I, I, I don't see how, you know, the Kremlin can really afford to disband Wagner at the moment, given how important it's been both in Ukraine and these other parts of the world. But same question to you, Jack, because you you study this. You can tell us where Prigozhin is, if you like. We'd be interested in that. But uh, um, and we'd we'd heard tales of camps being built in Belarus, but then that may not be true. Um, or can't you know troops moving back? into Ukraine. That may not be true. What, what's what's true and what's your view on this question? So, yeah, I can't tell you where Prigozhin is. I could tell you where his planes are, but I don't know who's flying on them. Um, they've been very busy, as I'm sure you've seen. Um, and regarding the camps in Belarus, now we've had these reports that there are camps being constructed. And then Lukashenko says they're going to be given an abandoned military base. Uh, all of that remains very unclear. 
But um, in regards to uh, sort of the options available to the Russian state, the costs of getting rid of Wagner beyond Ukraine, um, I definitely agree with Angela that they'd be pretty tremendous in terms of what Wagner has allowed Russia to achieve um, in the developing world. Um, we now see just recently in the last couple hours, Wall Street Journal is reporting that um, there have been instructions from uh, Russian military leadership basically telling the managers within the countries in Africa that they need to hold their posts, that there will be retribution if they try to quit their posts. Um, and all of that would point towards something that Lavrov, uh, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, seemed to be implying, which was that these units would be taken under the wing of the MOD and would continue their work in these countries. Statements from uh, leadership in places like the Central African Republic they're trying to broadcast essentially that they're not too concerned. But of course, they want to make sure that they're not rocking the boat. They want to make sure that they're friendly with whoever comes out on top here. Um, I would say that realistically, the options here, I, I've said frequently before that Wagner, um, Prigozhin needs Wagner more than Wagner needs Prigozhin. I do believe that there's a version of this in which you could reconstitute Wagner without Prigozhin. Um, what Wagner would have a much harder time surviving would be the removal of its its actual command staff, um, the military leadership that makes up the backbone of the organization. When we talk about Wagner, there's the military pillar, there's the sort of illicit commerce pillar, and there's the the the, the political interference pillar. Let's say we get rid of Prigozhin. You've now lost potentially two of those pillars, but if you can keep that command staff, you could ostensibly keep uh, that capability. You could keep that knowledge, that human capital, and, and, and keep it deployed and places like uh, Mali, Central African Republic, et cetera. Question is if, they'll, if they want to stay on once Prigozhin's gone. They do have personal relationships, and they're unlikely to trust um, other stewards from the Ministry of Defense for reasons that a lot of them have outlined very vocally around efficiency, bureaucracy, respect, and really, I think, the fundamental difference in command philosophy, which Wagner espouses quite loudly, but which I think we can see borne out in the reality on the ground, especially in Ukraine, which is that Command authority within Wagner is, is much more devolved than it is um, within the regular Ministry of Defense. It gives their units a lot more flexibility. Um, along with that, uh, it also means that there can be a lot less accountability um, and that atrocities are less likely to be uh, met with any kind of disciplinary measures, et cetera. Yeah. And, and let's, let's, uh, um, let's be clear about this. Those, those commanders are some of the world's worst people. I mean, they, you know, this, you know, they, 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 there was nobody on a white horse riding towards Moscow, not Prigozhin, not his commanders. Um, and that may have been the reason that, you know, the political class sat on their hands and they may be looking at this and saying, oh, well, you know, he negotiated. What's that all about? Um, and, you know, may trigger something in the future. What I'd like to do after our break is come back and talk about what the rest of the world ought to be doing about this, given the situation that we've just talked about. Um, but first, we take our break. We say thanks to everybody in the general public who has joined us. We appreciate your taking the time. We hope you find this useful. And if you do and you want to hear the remaining third of this podcast and all the other bonus content we have on all of our other podcasts, then go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership, and for $5 a month, you become a member and you get all the content that we've gotten, as you can see in times like this, real expert content provided uh, an opportunity to go in-depth in a way that you can't find them in-depth elsewhere. Um, it's really 
essential to understanding these issues. Uh, so we hope you'll do that. For now, thanks to everybody in the public for joining us and, you know, go to the dsrnetwork.com now. And for members, stand by. We'll be right back.